I have to hit record. All right, so uh, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, that will be our primary text today. But uh, you all know how I am. I tend to do long introductions for a short sermon. Uh, so hopefully, like, you all can hang with me on this. Because we're going to address an issue that is something of a hot topic. Uh, how many of us have heard the concept of social justice? or maybe critical theory or intersectionality, uh, or maybe you've heard things like, well, whiteness is a social construct for things like that. Or maybe a pastor will say, as a white man, I'm part of the problem of dot, dot, dot. Um, that is all out of the concept of social justice or critical theory. And just so you don't wonder where I stand, we're going to preach against that today. Um, and we're going to teach from the Word of God about what actual biblical justice is and why we need to stand on that as opposed to the opinions of man. So, here we go. To do that, I've got to address a couple of things. First of all, I'm going to ask just a few catechism questions just to kind of establish things. So, do you guys remember question six of our catechism? How can we glorify God? Kids, do you remember? How can we glorify God? By loving Him and obeying His commandments and law. So glorifying God involves obeying his law. Something to put in our mind. Uh, you'll also notice question seven. What does the law of God require? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, interesting here, because God has told us to bring him glory, we should obey his commandments and law. And then he said, my commandments are essentially love me and love your neighbor. You'll notice when they asked Jesus about what the law, what was the greatest commandments, he talked about these things. He actually cited Deuteronomy 6.4, where it says, love God, love others. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on this. Essentially, that means all of scripture plays out in this idea of either it's about loving God or loving others. The Ten Commandments, the first four of them, are about how to love God. The last six are about how to love others. Every other command fits into one of those two categories. And so before we go any further, can, I, can we just acknowledge the concept of justice is something that God has established and has spoken to. And we say from our view of Scripture, we believe in sola scriptura. Um, is 2 Timothy 3 talks about how the Word of God is sufficient. Everything we need is built into it as it relates to the things it speaks to. So from the outset, we can say God has spoken to what is just. I rely on his view of justice the truth is, I don't need anything outside of that to tell me what is right and wrong. Everybody with me? Cool. With that in mind, then, I need to take a quick history lesson and describe what this whole critical theory social justice thing is. So you guys ready for a fast history lesson? Hopefully that doesn't bore you. It's going to be fast. Super fast. Uh, so first of all, we have all heard of this guy, Karl Marx, right? Karl Marx was an atheistic materialist who also held to what is called Hegelian philosophy. Uh, so he denies the existence of God or any objective morality, and he saw all these relations within the world in terms of economic situations. And so he believed that there was a bourgeois capitalist over oppressor, and then there was all of the working class proletariat. And so he said what needs to happen is that there needs to be an economic turnaround. There needs to be a seizing of the means of production so all the workers have all of the control instead of the proletariat, right? And so communism essentially advocated for this idea of a, of a turnover where the economic uh, realities were flipped. Everybody with me following? So here's what people don't realize, though, about Marx, 
is that he was Hegelian. And in Hegelian philosophy, it is essentially fatalism. It believes that, that history is going to progress in a certain way, that there are, it's more complicated than this, but something like a cycle that's going to happen. And once things are in motion a certain way, things are going to play out that way. So it was interesting, Karl Marx didn't just believe this overthrow needed to happen, he believed it was going to happen. It was inevitable in his Hegelian philosophy. So it became a problem for his followers when it did not happen. So yes, we had Marxism kind of find its way into certain countries, but globally, it didn't really take over. It didn't really do what it was supposed to do. And so his followers started saying like, huh. And so you had this guy, Antonio Gramsci, who said, hey, well, Marxism has been proven false, but we still want to believe in it. So maybe if we just reinterpret it. And so he developed what we now call cultural Marxism. The idea of cultural Marxism is instead of seeing this oppressor-oppressed relationship in terms of economics, it was more related to social structures. And so what you have is they say, well, there is a hegemony in culture. And it's kind of the controlling, dominant worldview slash people group. Um, and he would say, those are the things that are oppressing. The idea of systemic racism is built into this idea that like, well, yeah, you guys are just kind of in control and you're keeping everybody else down. Critical to this view was the idea that every relationship is either oppressor or oppressed. So whether or not it's a husband and wife, or it's a worker and a boss, or it's you know somebody talking to their friend, one of them is an oppressor and the other one is oppressed. And the way that you're able to tell, according to critical theory, is whoever has the least is the one who is oppressed. And so can you see how this is essentially Marxism applied to social constructs? Everybody's following along? So Gramsci decides that like, yep, yeah, this is the way it's going to be. We've just reinterpreted Marxism. Um, you can imagine, though, that this was not going to be popular. And built into the idea is that like, well, hey, anything that's associated with hegemony is oppressive. So things like logic, education, mathematics, work, hard work were considered part of this oppressive structure. So if part of your view is that logic is bad, and it already denies the existence of God or any objective moral, well then that's going to be really hard to logically argue for. Make sense? If you deny logic as a good thing, well you can't exactly like have a debate on why logic is bad and prove it logically. So his followers, called the Frankfurt School, decided how are we going to get this into the minds of Americans? And they said, I know, we're just going to get jobs teaching in colleges. And in a college, we can do something really fast. One, we can take all those 18-year-olds who are really moldable, and we'll just flip them. Uh, we'll just teach critical theory as fact. We'll teach social justice as fact. And, that's how we'll, and then also, they'll go and teach in the elementary schools and the high schools, and this is how we're going to get them. And, and I'll just tell you, that's pretty much what they did. Now, around the 80s, uh, the idea of critical race theory began to get developed, and they actually put together a much more complicated strategy, and they implemented it. And so there is a reason why this happened so fast in our culture is because it happened in the academia, and there was no debate over it. You'll notice that critical theory doesn't get talked about as a theory to be discussed. It gets taught as a fact, right? Similar to how they snuck evolutionary theology in there is the same way. All right, everybody following so far because I recognize this is a lot of information. I promise we're going somewhere with this. Um, so we also had some things. So now thinking about like a big piece of this social justice view is then that justice is determined based on who is oppressed or not oppressed. 
Whoever does not have as much as the other, that person's oppressed. The person who has more is the oppressor. And so every relationship is seen through that lens. They believe that everything involves oppression and oppressed. This is why you will hear those who espouse critical race theory say like, well, everything is racist. You can't not be racist. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I, I'm not. I love my brother in Christ here. And they're like, nope, you're racist. You don't know it, but you're racist. And um, this is why they'll talk about the hegemony as, quote-unquote, whiteness. And they would say, well, whiteness is anything that is logical or built on hard work. And yes, white people can be whiteness, but also uh, like a Candace Owens or a Larry Elder or a Vody Bauckham would be considered part of white supremacy because they believe in those things. It does get kind of, does it sound crazy? It's crazy because it is crazy. A little side note, you might hear us at times talk about it is either Christ or chaos. Either we hold to the things of God and the logic that it is all that is all built into that, or you deny it and things unravel really fast. Critical theory is absolutely things unraveling really fast. If you would read Antonio Gramsci or the guys from the Frankfurt School, they would actually say that the purpose of critical theory is not to rebuild society better. Critical theory is designed to cause division and destruction because the goal is to topple the hegemony. The goal is not to raise up a better society. It's to destroy the current society. This is why it is inherently destructive. Um, I know it sounds direct and I, I know that there are people within certain, even evangelical circles that would say, well, Dan, you're just being mean. Uh, critical theory is not so bad. What's wrong with you? Well, here's the thing. If I am beginning with the presupposition that God does not exist, that moral objectivity does not exist, that there is no objective truth, there's no real way to land on faithful Christianity from that. Right? And I would say that if you're going to look at everything in the lens of oppressor versus oppressed, you're already denying the understanding of biblical theology. And so we have a problem because the cultural Marxism, the social justice, the critical theory, the intersectionality is all based on this premise that God is not the one who speaks to what law is. More on that later. A little side, I know I say that all the time. I realized that I was listening. I'm like, ah, I say that all the time. Um, so a couple of key things, some key people that are associated with this view would be Karl Marx, Michael Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Antonio Gramsci, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, the United Nations, and the World Economic Forum. These are all groups that have espoused some form of critical theory and or social justice. I would bring up something, I don't know if you all have noticed, that as, as this whole concept of like drag queen story hour has become really popular, uh, things related to that that, by the way, are, are actually leading to full-on, like, these men dressed as women exposing themselves to children. And have you noticed that when people have said, hey, that's bad, we, shouldn't we somebody say something about this? They'll say, you're a bigot, you're a bad person because you think this is bad. And you're like, how in the heck, where, how did we get here? Well, this is part of critical theory. Critical theory implies a concept called intersectionality. And in intersectionality, it's whoever is the most oppressed should have the most moral authority. So, for instance, if you are a black man, you get one point because you're a black man and you've been oppressed. If you're a black woman, you get two points because now you're doubly oppressed because you're also a woman. And women are inherently oppressed in whiteness systems, right? If she's also a lesbian, she gets three points. So imagine the ultimate pariahs of a society 
get the most points. Well, who is the ultimate pariah of our society? Who is the ultimate outcast but the child predators? And so now notice that they're esteeming them and saying, look how brave they are, because they're, they are the bottom of the society, so we need to give them the most moral authority. Brothers and sisters, this is built into critical theory. It's how it works. And I would say, well, we'll have to talk about that another time, but can we just acknowledge that this is happening and it's a problem? And have you also noticed, and I'll just say, this is happening in churches as well. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention in 2019 passed their infamous Resolution 9, where they affirmed critical theory and intersectionality as useful analytical tools. Well, we just saw that like they're based on a godless system, right? We've already affirmed that like that doesn't work with an idea of God's justice. And so when you bring it up and say, hey, wait a minute, man, this doesn't line up with scripture, they'll say, that's just your whiteness talking, right? You are, you are part of the hegemony of white Westerners who esteem logic, and now it's time to listen to the oppressed. And so the, the black guys now are going to speak to this. Well, then you're like, well, what about Vody Bauckham? He's not for this. He doesn't count because he doesn't agree with us. Um, he's, he's part of your whiteness system. And you're like, what in the world is going on? Well, I'll tell you, how, but think about how it slips in. When somebody's like, hey, how come you guys won't let women be pastors? And we're like, well, because that's what the Bible says. And they're like, that's, that's just you men controlling. You are oppressing women, not allowing them to be pastors. You're interpreting scripture in your way. Let's hear from the women. It's still critical theory. This is why feminism, uh, critical race theory, all of these things are all built into this general system. Can I give another side note? I know this is a lot of information, but this stuff is all there. Like we're, we're having to deal with it, so we need to know what it's called. Um, you heard me mention just a moment ago, Jacques Derrida. Um, how many have heard this concept of deconstruction? You guys heard this? If you've watched any of these formerly popular evangelicals, quote-unquote, that decide to leave the faith. And normally it's people that aren't that popular anymore, but suddenly they're getting attention because they're like, I'm leaving Christianity. And they'll say, quote, I am deconstructing. And I would say most of them don't even know what that means. But generally what they say is that I no longer believe what I once did. I don't believe it's objectively true. And so I'm taking apart the system of belief that I once had. Deconstruction out of the postmodernist and Jacques Derrida would affirm that there is no such thing as truth. They would say that words don't actually have any meaning as they connect with any objective reality. And so they would say that like our job is to us as the interpreter to take apart the system of truth and believe what we want related to our truth. Does this sound familiar? It builds right into critical theory. It is distinct from it, but they go hand in hand. Interestingly enough, Jacques Derrida and the other postmoderns were part of a group in France uh, uh, several decades ago to advocate for the decriminalization of child predator actions. It's funny how now here we are a couple of decades later, and what is critical theory and deconstruction doing but affirming that very thing? So can you kind of, hopefully, is everybody with me that, like, this is a bad thing, yeah. right? Um, cool. All right. So we won't go into all the details. In your notes that I sent out, I go into much more detail. Uh, feel free to look at that. We are limited on time. Um, 
I'm just going to ask the question, you ever wonder, like, okay, well then how in the world did we get here? Like, how did the church allow this in? Like, there's popular evangelical pastors that will say things like, part of the problem with racism is me because I'm a white man. I'm like, what? well, what did you do? Like, I mean, if you're being racist, then that's a problem. Let's deal with that. Don't be racist. Scripture actually talks about how racism is sin. So what are you talking about, man? And so I'm, I'm sitting here as an, as an evangelical pastor saying, well, how did we get here? I'm just going to quote a few stats here, and then we're going to get to Scripture. Um, I know this has been a long intro. Sorry, you guys are good. All right? So based on a study from Barna, only 51% of Protestant pastors have a biblical worldview. I want you to think about that. When they ask basic questions about the worldview of Christianity, what Scripture speaks to things, roughly half of the pastors said, I don't believe that. Do you think that that might be a problem if we're trying to teach people what God says about something? A 56% of Christians believe that their faith is entirely private. So even the ones that are faithful are possibly likely to say, ah, yeah, I don't believe those things, but it's not really my job to speak publicly about it. Right? 20, 34% of evangelicals do not believe Jesus is God. That's just nuts to me. 42% of evangelicals believe God accepts worship from all religions. 22% of evangelicals believe that gender is a matter of choice. And this one is the, the crushing one. Only 9% of people who claim to be born-again Christians actually have a biblical worldview. So I want you to think about nine. This is according to a Barna research essay. Can I just tell you all, if only 9% hold to a biblical worldview, then when somebody comes in pushing something outside of that, they're probably not even going to notice. And especially if, let's just face the reality, racism is a problem. Right? There, there are bad things happening in our culture that need to be addressed. And if the church is not speaking to them with the whole counsel of Scripture, if pastors don't even necessarily believe those things, then when somebody comes along and says, like, hey, here's a way we can deal with racism, they're like, yeah, let's, let's get on board with that. So brothers and sisters, we're going to respond with a biblical view of justice. All right, and then I promise we're going to get to Ephesians 4. is actually going to be our primary text. This is more introduction, but you guys know my sermons are not long once I get there. You guys with me? All right, so some understanding related to biblical justice. Here's something interesting. The word dikaiosune, which is the word we translate to righteousness or justice, is one word. We see it used a lot in Scripture, obviously in the New Testament primarily, because it is a Greek word. Uh, but this word is translated the same. So when we talk about justice in Scripture, we're talking about righteousness. Uh, when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about justice. Now, as we translate the term, a lot of times we'll use righteousness to refer to either God's character of being, and that he is righteous, he is morally good. And then we either line up with that righteousness or we don't. When we talk about justice, generally we're translating that same word in reference to the application of righteousness as it relates to God saying, hey, that is evil and I'm judging it, or here is my standard, you're not measuring up. Uh, typically, justice is related to making things righteous by either God's punishment or his redemption. Making sense? But in Scripture, it's only one word. So if we're going to speak about justice in any type of Christian sense, we have to acknowledge that it is directly tied to the character of God. Right? 
It's an expression of his righteousness. We see that he has given us his law to talk about what his righteousness, what his justice is. We also know that scripture is God-breathed. It is inerrant, it is perfect, and it is sufficient, as we see in 2 Timothy 3. Thus, if God speaks to it, that's all we need, right? We know that God's law is holy and revives the soul. It's a little side note. If God's law is what revives the soul, why do I need anything else outside of it? And we also see 1 John 3 refers to sin as lawlessness. So understanding, we're talking about God's righteousness and anything outside of it is sin, including any system of thought that would seek justice apart from God's divine decree. So, a couple of other points here before we get to Ephesians 4. One, justice is commanded by God. In Micah 6.8, it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Psalm 33.5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfastness of the Lord. We also see that actual justice is enforced by God. In Hebrews 10.30, it says, For we, we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The idea here is that God will bring justice one way or the other. We are to seek it in this life, amen, but we recognize that we will not have it fully, that his eternal punishment and or his atoning death on the cross will bring about justice one way or the other, and that that's what I need to seek after primarily. Cool? Um, we also see that justice is defined by God himself. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of, the, of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. We also know, based on Isaiah 10, that man's justice can be unrighteous. It talks about waging mischief with iniquitous decrees. This means that there are laws, there are concepts of men that are inherently unrighteousness. And why? Because they do not align with God's righteousness. This is why in Acts 5 they say we must obey God rather than men. This is, brothers and sisters, why some of those Puritans and Presbyterians in the 1700s said, King George is not allowed to do that. And so we're going to defy him because God's law says this and he's doing that. And so we're going to obey God rather than men. Praise the Lord. Um, here's the other thing. We're getting somewhere here. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Keep in mind, that's the same word, dikaiosune. It could as easily be translated, the justice of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice then, if I am beginning this concept and saying God has shown us what law is, he has shown us what his commands are, they are built on his character, and then when he gives the gospel, the purpose of it is to show that righteousness all the more. If I begin with some other view of righteousness, what I'm essentially doing is saying I am not going to give glory to God for his righteousness. Everybody following on that? And so then God's immediately robbed of glory when we use any other standard other than his own. This is why in Romans 3, 25 through 26, he says, Whom God put forward, this is Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, receive, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Notice then what's happening with the gospel. He's showing us his righteousness with his law. We don't measure up with it. And so what does he do but shows his righteousness again by giving it to us in the propitiation that is Christ's atoning sacrifice. You guys... The reason why this issue of social justice versus biblical justice is so important, among others, is that it is central to the gospel. God is revealing his justice in the gospel. He's revealing his righteousness, and he's doing it on two ways. One, he's showing it with his law that he is righteous. We don't match up, and so he shows us his righteousness on the other side by giving it to us in atoning for our sin. It doesn't get better than that, and at the center of all this is God's justice and his glory. I would even say this. We're going to get ready to study Romans in our next study. Guys, the gospel is not even primarily for you. It is God's, by God's grace. It saves you, and it's wonderful. But notice, according to Romans 1... The purpose is for God to receive glory, right? The whole point of this is that he is shown to be just and justifier. That's why we have the gospel. The benefit is we get saved, but it's all about him being the star of the show. Praise the Lord. So, um, I'll just kind of add, this is another reason why when Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, we're supposed to pray. His kingdom come and will be done. His law, it's his law that's meant to be brought out into this world. And so if justice is defined by anyone or anybody other than God, he's being robbed of glory, and we lose our chance at redemption. Cool? So with that in mind, there's this big question. All right, well then, how are we going to respond to this social justice thing? Well, hopefully I've given you some tools right there, and here's what God stands on it. But if we could just look very quickly at Ephesians chapter 4, which is our primary text. We're now to the sermon but it won't take long, you guys, right? There are pastors that read the primary text first, and then they do all the other stuff I just did. I like to, like, build up to, like, this is the main text, all right? So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Could I get someone to read verses 1 through 8? Go for it. Thanks, brother. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right, so can we highlight a few things here? Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. He, uh, we would actually say that very likely this letter to, F- to the Ephesians was going to be used by the various elders there to build up the church. A cool side note, when Paul was leaving Ephesus after a long time, and he gives this charge in Acts chapter 20, I think it's 20, uh, to the Ephesian elders. He's like, there's going to be false teachers come around, you guys. They're going to cause division. It's bad news. And he's like, probably some of you are even going to stand up and be false teachers, and it's going to be a big problem. And he's tearfully saying goodbye to them, warning them about false teachers. Well, then what does Paul do? Later on, he writes this letter 
to give to the elders to be used in the churches to make sure that like, hey, let's, let's avoid false teaching, let's be doctrinally sound. And what does he say here in chapter 4? He begins by saying, walk worthy. And then what does he do but list spiritual fruits? Same things listed in Galatians 5. He's essentially saying, walk in the spirit, be in the word, be spiritually nurtured, you're going to grow spiritual fruit. That, that's step number one, the being the church that we are to be. Right? All this in the general context of false teaching is bad, we need to stop it. So second, he reminds them of the unity that we have in the body. He talks about one body, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, one hope. And he's like, guys, there's only one way here. It's Christ. We are all unified within that thing. So he begins by walk worthy, followed up by remember that we are all in this one thing together. And then he mentions this idea of grace being given for this unity and building up of the body. So with that in mind, could I get somebody to read verses 11 through 16? I got it. Go for it, brother. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the, body, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Thank you, brother. Can we remember the point of critical theory? You remember that the purpose of critical theory was to destroy the hegemony, right? It is by definition, not by definition, by design, designed to destroy. And a side note, that's not me saying that. The, the, the thinkers of the Frankfurt School, Antonio Gramsci, they will say, this is the purpose of critical theory. We want to destroy the hegemony. It is all about division and destruction. Uh, that's the point of it. And so here we are, teaching a truth that is about unity in Christ, that is about walking in humility and love. And what is Paul saying here? But that the saints should be equipped, that the goal is maturity in Christ, and that will keep us from being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Brothers and sisters, critical theory is a wind of doctrine. And so he's pointing out like, hey, God has given us the offices of the church to equip the saints for ministry. The idea here is that if the ministers of the church are equipping the saints properly, they are doing the ministry work. That's not to say that the pastors don't minister also, but the language here is that they should be equipping the saints for the ministry work. Right? Remember when we looked at the stats a little bit earlier, that only half of the pastors really believed this anyway, and so only 9% of the, of the people in the pews believed it. That's a big problem. So the answer here, one, is to make sure we're getting equipped. I'll make a side note plug for underground seminary, uh, for being in discipleship. Get grounded, because the more you have an understanding of theology, of doctrine, of what the Word of God says, the less likely you are to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And notice then the goal is unity and maturity in Christ. 
that it makes us as a church impervious to false teaching when we are mature and grounded in the things of God. You will notice when we, when we look at, a, uh, at an Old Testament book such as Judges, there is a failure of the priesthood to teach the word first that tends to lead into idolatry and apostasy and destruction and all that. I would say, and I know that, I mean, it's me and the elders here, well, I'll continue to say, like, let's continue to be faithful brothers, and then call of our brothers from other churches to be faithful in their teaching as well. And then saints, I would say to you, get equipped. It is not enough to just say, cool, I, I believe the gospel and I'm good. Yeah, praise the Lord. Just, that's good enough to be saved. But if you are going to help build the kingdom of God, if you are going to help build up the body of Christ into maturity and faith and unity so that we would be impervious to false teaching, you must also be equipped and you must also do the ministry work. Cool? Everybody's with me. Down at the center of all of this, as always, is the gospel. If I'm preaching the gospel well, I'm communicating the law of God first. They're like, you're a sinner. This is God's justice. You don't measure up. I don't measure up. Christ gave us his righteousness. I'm preaching the righteousness of Christ on both ends when I preach the gospel accurately. I'm talking about the law and that we don't measure up, and I'm talking about the gospel that he has measured up and given us his righteousness. If I am doing that right, brothers, and I'm calling people to repentance and faith, that's step one into fighting this false teaching of critical theory. I would say let's continue to walk worthy, let's get equipped, and let's speak the truth in love. That's what he's commanded us to. The truth is the gospel. Let's keep up the gospel work. Everybody's with me. I will cite two sources that are hopefully helpful. One is By What Standard. There is both a book and a documentary. The documentary might still be free on YouTube. Highly recommended. It. it goes into the history of all this and how the church should respond. I would also recommend the book Fault Lines by Vodi Bakum, where he goes into, here's what's happening in the church right now over this issue. Um, I will also notice, brothers and sisters, like we went into a lot of history and a lot of extra stuff here to make sure that you know what's happening. Uh, but just because I'm doing that doesn't mean that the center of all this is not the teaching of the Word of God. Um, if God speaks to something, that is our authority. No matter what other authority tries to say that they have an authority, no matter how many times they say, no, that's just you thinking that way. Well, I'm trying to think this way because it's what God's Word says. And so this is where we stand. So with that in mind, I am going to pray. And then who is on for gospel today? Me. Awesome. All right, Lord, thank you so much uh, for these brothers and sisters who are faithful to hear and proclaim the gospel. Lord, may we stand on your truth. God, build us up into mature unity. Lord, may we as elders faithfully equip the saints. May the saints do the ministry work. May there be unity and maturity. And may false teaching bounce right off. Lord, may we teach faithful doctrine to our children and their children and their children, that for generations to come until you return, uh, we have a remnant of, of the faithful. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So God created us, man and woman, in his own image.